0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Kristen Henning, a professor at Georgetown Law and a former public defender. She is the author of a recent book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Welcome to our show.
1: Thank you for having me, David. Happy to be here.
0: So, let me start with a really provocative question Does America criminalize Black youth or do Black youth criminalize themselves?
1: Oh, wow. So, you know, the theme of my book is very much the criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors. Um, And so the answer to that question is that indeed, America decides what we will treat as criminal, right? Um, We write the laws and we enforce the laws and we do so differently based upon the race of the child. Um, And so I do, I think there is a real case um, made throughout this book that America criminalizes Black youth. Um, And I would go um, even a step further to say that even when Black children violate the laws, right, the developed and endorsed criminal laws, that the way in which we punish or respond to um, those behaviors are different for Black children and White children, and in ways that ultimately criminalize mistakes, criminalize very, you know, sometimes very poor outcomes in ways in which we would not um, respond to a White child, criminalize or or, or punish a White child. So, yes.
0: And and let me just explain why I started with that question, because it's one of my big frustrations that every time you point out, uh, not you particularly, but people in general point out inequities in the system, uh, you get that question kind of thrown back at you. And so I wanted to see how you responded to it.
1: Absolutely, it's a good question. I mean, and, and you're absolutely right. It gets you know asked or framed in a number of different ways, but ultimately, it's you know a question of well, don't black kids commit more crimes? Um, and that's sort of a reframing of that same sort of sentiment. And the answer is actually, when you look at the data, it's not true um, that that black kids commit uh, more crime than white kids. It's that we enforce them, we look for them, we interpret um, adolescent behaviors. Um, you know, as criminal for Black kids, so. And we'll unpack that point
0: uh, in, a, in a bit here. Um, but what inspired you to write the book?
1: So I have, um, you, you noted that I was a um, former public defender. I am a professor at Georgetown Law School, but in that capacity, I still represent children. I take, uh, I teach a clinic. Um, which means I take my third year law students into D.C. Superior Court and we still represent children in the District of Columbia accused of crime. So when you say, why did I write that book? It is because I have been representing children in the nation's capital for the last 25, 26 years. And in that entire time, I have only represented four white children. That's it. Um, Which is just, you know, statistically impossible. It's mind boggling, isn't it? It should shock the conscience um, of everyone. Really, it should. Um, And it would lead you to believe either that um, there are no white children in the nation's capital or that white children don't commit crime. And the reality is neither of those are true. Um, And so for me, it was really hard to continue doing this work as long as I have been doing it without stopping to ask some of these really important questions like whether or not the racial disparities that I see in the nation's capital are um, happening all over the country. We know the answer to that is yes. (laughs) Um, You know, asking questions like, um, are we as a society any safer because we arrest so many Black and brown children? And the answer is no. (laughs) Um, You know, I ask questions like, what is the impact of this extraordinary racial disparity in the uh, arrest and prosecution of black children, what is the impact of that on the developmental well-being of black children? So those are the kinds of questions that I felt like it was just essential to to unpack um, as I as I wrote this. And one of the points
0: that you actually made in the book uh, was it. It was easy to forget that white youth were committing the same kinds of crimes my clients were. They just weren't being arrested. So that gets kind of to your point that it's not that white kids aren't committing crimes. It's that they're not getting caught up in the system.
1: That's absolutely right. And I, and I have to say that, you know, for all of your, your listeners, that this book is very much um, a collection of stories as much as it is a collection of the research in, written in a way that I hope is accessible to a mass audience. And I make that point because I tell stories about children. Um, White children and Black children. And my hope is that every single reader will see themselves or see their own children in these stories. What are the stupidest things that we ever did when we were kids, right? Um, What were those mistakes that um, our children made that technically yes um, fit the elements of a criminal offense, but that we would never respond by calling the police or um, you know referring them to the to the legal system. So indeed, um, yes, <laughs> uh, we forget that. I mean, let's really stop and think about it, right? What's the essence of you know childhood? It's you know particularly those teenage years. Um, it's experimenting, right? Very often experimenting. Experimenting with drugs, experimenting with alcohol, um, getting into brawls um, or fights, uh, talking back to a teacher, some of those things that um, we sort of take for granted as sort of a rite of passage, um, even if they annoy us, even if they're problematic, even if that we don't condone them, but they're in a lot of ways, uh, uh, just part and parcel of what it means to be adolescents, um, but we don't criminalize them for white kids.
0: Well, and and just to illustrate an example from your book, there's the young lady who got into a fight with her boyfriend, took his cell phone and gets charged with it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's just and there's stories after stories like that. But I mean, just to flesh that out, literally this happens. We have a teenage girl. 17 year old, you know, gets into an argument with her boyfriend. Um, She snatches, this is in school in a hallway, between classes, they weren't supposed to be in class. You know, she reaches over she grabs his cell phone and begins to walk away scrolling through his text messages to see whether or not he had been texting with some other girl. Um, And a school resource officer, police officer stationed at the school, um, happens to observe this And literally arrest her for robbery, a serious felony. Robbery. Um, And so, you know, the argument here, and this is, of course, as a young black girl, that this just never would have happened um, had it been, you know, a, uh, you know, had, had it been a white child, we just wouldn't respond that way.
0: So is this a matter of there, there's a school resource officer at this school, or is it a matter of how the school resource officer responded to this incident?
1: Great question. My answer is both and right? So, I mean, I talk, uh, there's a chapter I devote to this notion of cops in schools or police in schools. Um, And we have, in our country, come to over-rely on um, police officers as the only way to achieve public safety, and especially in the school system. Um, And so I do make the case that we could do this. We could have safe schools, and in fact, safer schools, schools than they are right now if we reduced the physical presence of police officers in the school building. And that's not as controversial as it sounds, right? I am not taking the position that police officers should never be called to intervene in a school based incident. But the question is how and when and where are they located? Um, We still have our 911 system, right? Um, Police departments are still located in very close proximity to virtually every school in the country. The way, you know, sort of the mapping and the gridding is done. Um, And so the problem with having police officers physically present in the building, it means that teachers and uh, school administrators will over rely on police officers for routine school discipline right? Um, As opposed to calling them when there is a true and serious threat of violence in the school. So the first question is, yes, I do believe that it is a problem of having uh, too many officers um, in school. And then secondly, it's a problem of not training officers. And when you look at the research, the officers, you know, self-report studies will tell you that they aren't getting adequate training on working with young people. They don't get training on, on adolescent brain development, on the key stages of adolescent psychosocial development. They don't get training on de-escalating. They don't get training on working with children with cognitive and learning disabilities, which are a heavy percentage of the young people who get um, uh, arrested by or um, have some sort of intervention by a school police officer. So it's both and, and we're talking about race. The final thing I'll say about it is there is a a significant racial disparity in the ways in which school resource officers um, first are stationed, Um, and assigned to various schools throughout the country, right? Um, A school with a heavy percentage of black and brown students is more likely to have school resource officers present, notwithstanding crime statistics. And the evidence shows that black and brown children in all schools are more likely to to be arrested um, or disciplined uh, by school resource officers.
0: Yeah, and the data on school resource officers is, you know, once you put a police officer into the school, they act like a police officer. And that's that, right. Um, that's that's a big problem no matter where you are.
1: That's absolutely right. I say, you know, sometimes I, I probably have this sentence in the book. I certainly say it all the time is, you know what? Police officers act like police officers 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because that's what they were trained to do. They weren't trained to be teachers and counselors and, you know, um, adolescent babysitters. Right. They were trained to be police officers. So, you know, they arrest and they use force and, you know, they, you um, They, you know, if it's, uh, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, (laughs) right? (laughs) So,
0: So, you know, that gets back to, I think, the core question um, that you ask yourself as you read this book is, why have we criminalized Black youth to Mm -hmm. such an extent?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is the core question, and I you know, always um, say that we as a country have to acknowledge that America has a long history of failing to recognize Black children as children right? Um, notwithstanding our sort of westernized notions of adolescent innocence and childhood innocence, we don't give that grace and benefit to Black children. And it starts all the way back from our inception. Think about the era of slavery when Black children were perceived from the outset as property of the purported master. And then we move into the civil rights era, and you've got an Emmett Till, who is violently lynched, you know, for all to see. Um, and and to be really clear that Emmett Till was lynched uh, in the wake of Brown versus Education, Board of Education, as a symbolic statement that, look, we in America, we don't want to tolerate. We're not going to stand for uh, integration of our school system. So it's a very symbolic lynching, even if it wasn't in that Precise moment uh, perceived as such. Um, and then, you know, we move into the 90s and we have this temporary uptick in crime, and Black children become the primary target of the war on crime. And so I, I, I. I wanted to revisit those pieces of history because it's important that when we make uh, Black children or we sacrifice Black children in these sort of utilitarian ways or for the economic and political gain of, um, of, honestly, of white America, you have to, the only way you can justify the brutal lynching of an Emmett Till um, is to claim that Black children are evil or dangerous or violent. And in Emmett Till's context, right? That he's a sexual predator and he's a threat to all women. And and so those narratives, right? At each stage in history are intentionally constructed Um, And in the 90s, we had the super predator myth. People will remember, 1990s, the super predator myth. And it was largely a function of politicians recognizing that there was political gain um, to be made by demonizing Black children um, and making the connection between race and crime, even though that that uptick in crime was was only temporary. So after these moments of very intentional construction of these demonized narratives about Black children, those narratives still live on in our society today, in our, um, I would say in the American psyche, in our subconscious. Um, And so the average person walks down the street and to be quite frank, uh, you know, not even just you know, of all races, right? Walks down the street, you see a group of black kids, and you're automatically afraid. And so, what I'm saying is, we've moved from this intentional uh, demonization of black children to this subconscious view um, that we just we we won't let go that black children are dangerous and violent when in fact they aren't that different from white kids.
0: And I. I keep trying to convince people that the data doesn't support this notion, but I, I, I cannot convince them of it. Like they will not believe it, even when I cite it. Right. Um, I mean, the, um, you know, black youth were arrested, this is from your book, right. uh, 1.6 times that of white youth in 1980. times that of white youth in 2008, and 2.6 times that of white youth in 2018. Um, And so you have, you know, um, 16% of the youth population, but half the
1: arrests. Absolutely. Uh, Things are getting worse. They're not getting better. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, you're so right. It is so hard to get people to understand. So people will take those very arrest statistics and use that to argue that Black children are more dangerous without understanding. No, these are arrest statistics. They're not uh, behavior statistics. And so part of what I try to do in the book, in addition to the narratives, is, is to introduce people to another body of research and data, which most people are not familiar with. And it is the body of research called self-report data by teenagers. And and what's so interesting about it is that these um, self-report studies have been conducted now for almost, I can't even remember, I think I say it in the book, maybe it's like 40 years, but the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and the University of Michigan, um, there are a series of studies on youth, youth risk behavior self report surveys and those surveys show black kids white kids kids of every single race are reporting the same types of impulsive um uh, delinquent behaviors across the board across drugs across weapons use across fighting across driving uh, drinking while driving um, but yet It does not match the arrest data, but people insist, no, 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 Black kids are more dangerous. And so the only differences we see in sort of those self-report data might be the type of drugs that are used, or maybe in some communities, the type of weapon that is used. Um, But the point is the same risky adolescent behaviors are seen across all races and across all socioeconomic classes. Um, And then the other piece of research most people are not familiar with is there is some, Uh, developmental psychological research, right? That has been done by a body of psychologists a group of psychologists who are very interested in this question and what they have done is they have actually controlled they have said okay we put kids together you know across race and across class across ethnicity and we see if they hit the same developmental milestones um, along the same way including the developmental milestone of delinquency of impulsive delinquent behavior and the answer is yes that across all of those all of those differences um, that 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 uh, young people engage in the same impulsive delinquent behaviors, not just all over the United States, but all over the world. Um, studies have been done um, uh, to show. Um,
0: and there's also, of course, uh, what I would call the classic stat, um, you know, the drug use stat, which mm-hmm. uh, basically is that. Blacks and whites use drugs about the same rate, maybe even whites a little higher, right. uh, depending on which data you're looking at. Um, and they also sell drugs at roughly the right. same rate. Um, and yet, I think the last time I saw it, it was like Blacks are eight times more likely than whites to be arrested um, yeah. and prosecuted and convicted and and, and the whole works. Uh, so, so this is like a huge disparity in the criminal justice system.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, you know, and even to bring it home, I mean, we can all stop and think about the difference in the national response to opioid, right? Um, The opioid, you know, was called an epidemic. The opioid epidemic is actually one of the first drugs ever to declare, to be declared an epidemic. And when we talk about epidemics, we're thinking about health crises, right? Whereas when there was the era of crack and heroin, those were demonized as criminal right? Um, And not as a public health crisis. And really what the major difference is, is that the opioid crisis really got the attention of white America, white power holders whose own children were impacted. And then they became far more sympathetic to that plight, but yet could not see the exact same plight was happening in black and brown children during the crack which should have been called an epidemic or should have been owned and understood as an epidemic. And so the, the, you know, federal government, the White House, you know, convened a commission and, you know, put tons of dollars into a public health response to the opioid uh, crisis as opposed to other drugs.
0: Now, unfortunately what happens is, you know, youth becomes kind of this entry point into the criminal legal system and so you know this isn't fun and games right um you know where where people who are doing pretty normal things maybe even benign things um end up in the criminal system and then they're kind of stuck there right
1: Yeah. David, it's such a great question that I think people really miss, right? So, you know, a good portion of my book talks about the criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors, things that should never have been in the system in the first place. But then what happens is we ignore the extraordinary traumatic effects of that criminalization on the life outcomes of those young people, right? So you're starting them off in the delinquency system. You know, some of those kids even end up getting, you know, spending time in detention facilities. Um, like, think about it, right? So I just told you the story, or you you reminded me of the story of the the young girl who's 17 years old and you know gets arrested and charged with robbery. That is a felony. And so um, that goes on her record. That then you know, limits the opportunity she might have in the future. A judge who's really not paying attention to the facts sees this as a felony, sees this as a robbery, and then might um, uh, uh, incarcerate her as, as if she's a serious felon, right? So all of these things have really long-term detrimental opportunities. They reduce vocational opportunities, um, which were, you know, uh, they actually lead to the eviction of some families from public housing, um, rendering entire families homeless. And so you, you got to your ultimate point was then these kids end up in the adult criminal system, um, for real offense. Right. But we have sort of, you know, <laughs> created this really parade of horribles for the young people. And then we expect them to thrive and, and you know and succeed in life when we were criminalizing them from the very outset. Um, and so, you know, there's much more research that sort of lays out that that trajectory from this early miscriminalization into the the flow into real delinquent behaviors and into, into real criminal behaviors.
0: And- You know, at the very least, it's taking, um, you know, young people that are at risk to begin with and
1: pulling them out of school, which doesn't (laughs) seem to be what you want to do. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, a it's again, my notion of, or not even my notion, you know, the, the scientific notion of a public health response to public safety um, does not include exclusion and isolation of children from the, the, the aspects of society they need most, most which is Supervision during daytime hours, <laughs> um, education, <laughs> uh, vocational opportunities, an opportunity to be creative and, and and learn social skills and leadership skills and um, you know, self-esteem, all of these things that we get while we're in school that we take for granted. Recreation, every single aspect of of, um, schooling and every single aspect of healthy adolescent development um, is undermined when we take a law enforcement approach to normal adolescent behaviors. We can redirect children away from delinquent behavior Uh, without these traditional law enforcement responses and without exclusion from schools, suspension, expulsion, and the like.
0: So we talked about one example, but uh, whose story kind of stands out to you uh, as you think back on it?
1: There's so many stories that stand out. I think the story that I opened the book with and ultimately that I closed the book with um, is, is just, you know, tugs at my heart Um, In so many different ways. And just to, you know, to give you the the short version, I represented a kid who I'll call Eric and um, Eric on one Saturday night was watching a movie and he sees someone make a Molotov cocktail in that movie. In his 13-year-old brain, he says, oh, this looks cool. Let me see if I can make something that looks like that. He goes into the kitchen. He grabs a glass bottle. He begins to pour liquids into the bottle, not doing any research to figure out what do you put in a Molotov cocktail, but he has bleach, pine salt, whatever he can find. And then in his 13-year-old way, he grabs a piece of toilet paper and he runs the toilet paper, right, from the inside of the bottle to the outside and puts a cap on it right that's his Molotov cocktail and he tapes it up so it looks like a Molotov cocktail um and you know he forgets all about it right it's a toy he forgets all about it he puts it in his book bag and his mother drives him to school on Monday morning he puts his book bag through the metal detector and the school resource officer immediately says what is that He says, oh, that's nothing. You can throw it away. He's not thinking anything about it. He goes on to class. And next thing he knows, this is the beginning of a nine-month ordeal in the juvenile legal system. He gets the police officers show up. The fire department shows up. He gets charged with arson, attempted arson, and um, possession of a Molotov cocktail. And it makes the news. I mean, it's just in every way detrimental to adolescents. It's embarrassing. It disrupts his schooling. You know, he gets to spend the night um, in, in detention. He's in court for nine months. He gets excluded from, he got suspended and then excluded from all of his extracurricular activities. I mean, just all kinds of horrible things happen. And then the thing that I really should, this is what really resonates with me about the story is so I was giving a, a talk. I was doing a, a conference some sometime after Um, I had been representing Eric and at that conference I told Eric's story and a white woman came up to me after the conference and she said my son did the exact same thing. And I said to her well what happened and she said they put him in advanced chemistry classes. I mean so the contrast, I mean if that story doesn't tell you everything that this book is about, (laughs) you know I don't know what will that is just it was just it's just such a difference in the way that we perceive the threat and the danger of Black children in comparison to white kids.
0: Yeah, you know, I I could relate to that because that, that just sounded like something I would do um, right. <laughs> when I was a kid. Uh, fortunately, you know, uh, we didn't have metal detectors and,
1: uh,
0: you know, I mean, it, it's just this, yeah, it's a dumb thing to do, but he's a 13-year-old kid and and didn't know what he was doing and right. probably didn't understand what he was doing. And they criminalized it. And, and it turns into this long thing. And, you know,
1: I mean, what's the impact on him
0: from... From this experience,
1: how- yeah, that's another great question, and I, you know, I talk about this a lot. So, you know, some of the things that we've already talked about—the ways in which it interferes with education—and it's embarrassing. And I keep using that word embarrassing for a reason. Think about what you were like as a teenager, right? Um, all of the folks who are listening—how traumatic it is to feel embarrassed in front of your classmates. Um, there is, but there is also research. There is empirical research documenting the ways in which. Um, um, uh, policing, right, um, uh, has a traumatic impact on the mental health of Black children, of Black and Brown children in particular. The research shows that Black and Brown children who are the targets of frequent stops and frisk, or even who just live in heavily surveilled and heavily police, police neighborhoods, experience and report high rates of fear, anxiety depression, uh, low self-esteem, they become hyper-vigilant, which means they're always on guard, right? Always distrusting the police, and that distrust of the police transfers over to other state actors, like their teachers, their counselors, other people that are trying to be their ally. The research also shows that young people who live in these heavily surveilled neighborhoods have real difficulty sleeping. Either they can't sleep at all, or that they have real poor sleep quality at night, um, the research also shows that it has an extraordinary impact on what we call identity development, which is a fancy word for basically how you see yourself and how you see yourself in in, um, in interplay with other people, right? So it's your self-esteem. Um, and so that young people who are frequently called criminal or seen as criminal or treated as criminal develop a low self-esteem. And then um, one of the most important things that we forget about, this ties back to this public safety question that we were talking about earlier, is that the research shows that Black children who, um, and brown children who see um, police officers as unfair or racially, and they watch, they can see that their, their, you know, uh, their, their colleagues or their peers, I should say, their friends at school aren't treated the same way, but that children, Black children, children who see these disparities really lose faith in the law and law enforcement. And so young um, Black and brown children who have early negative encounters with the police go on to have this very sort of fixed notion of the police officers being dangerous um, and uh, unfair. They learn to resent and fear police in ways that are not helpful, right, um, to, uh, to public safety for any of us. Um, and so there's a lot, there's a, um, a lot of research. That's just a summary of, of some of it. A lot of research on the impact of this sort of criminalization, hyper surveillance, and over-policing of Black and brown children.
0: So from your perspective, how do we fix all of this? (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, um, that's the, you know, million-dollar question, and I think, you know, one, I think the hardest aspect, let so I'll start there, then I'll give some more practical solutions, but the hardest thing is that we have got to figure out how to shift the culture, um, and by that I mean is really my goal with this book, again, is to get folks to see Black children as children by reading these stories and saying what you just said, oh, I saw myself in that, right? Um, so that's a part of the cultural shift. Um, and I think some of that comes from um, all of us figuring out how to be in healthy proximity to Black children, um, and whether that's mentoring, whether that's volunteering, whether that's, you know, some way to really see the, the you know, just the, the, the joy and the potential and the sheer adolescence of young Black kids. That's all a part of the Culture shift. But more practically, you know, I I like to think about what do we do about this in sort of maybe three buckets. One is that we really do have to radically reduce the footprint of police in the lives of Black and brown children, right? Um, And so that's everything from rethinking this over-reliance of of police in schools, right? And replacing police officers with mental health providers, right? Radically shifting those dollars um, for law enforcement, from law enforcement, into mental health services and um, vocational services and opportunities and tutoring and mentoring in the school system. But it also means rethinking, you know, um, traditional stop and frisk practices in local communities, um, local Black and brown neighborhoods that are overly policed. Um, It means that Um, you know, we can't allow police officers to seek what, there's this thing they call consent searches. So a police officer will walk up to a civilian and say, hey, can I search you? Even if they have no, um, reasonable, legitimate or articulable, um, belief that the the person has committed a crime. And this happens so commonly, people are just not aware of it, but it happens so commonly in black, uh, and brown communities. And if you're a teenager, you don't realize that you have a right to say no, Um, so we've got we've to sort of unravel some of that. So that's one bucket. Um, I think another bucket is that when in those rare circumstances where police officers do need to come in contact with children, that they need to do so in ways that are developmentally appropriate, right? So that every single, this goes back to the question you asked earlier, was that scenario in school about a school resource officer making the wrong decision or was it about the presence? Well, it's both and. And the second part is about training Training police officers, right? Training police officers on adolescent development, de-escalation strategies, implicit racial bias, um, uh, disability, all of these things that police officers need to be trained on. Um, and we need to have rules and regulations, right, that prohibit use of force, for example, on um, on children, right? So things of that nature. Um, and then the third Third category is um, rethinking how we as a, a legal system respond even to the most serious offenders, right? There's actually research showing that even the most serious violent offenders can be rehabilitated. And there's evidence based best practices for dealing with those um, young people. And, you know, I got to tell people out here it's not sending them to adult prisons. In jails, that's actually doesn't work. Um, but that the the strategies are um, very often community based, rehabilitative, um, intensive, wraparound services um, for young people that that make all the difference.
0: Yeah, and I I, uh, I agree with a lot of that. Um, you know, <laughs> I but. I'm never really arguing. It's it's more of a a point of emphasis. I think there's a fundamental problem here, and it gets back to uh, you know what happened with Tamir Rice um, yes. because you have a kid that's not seen as a kid by that's the cops, and and that led to his death, basically, absolutely. and so. You know, while I completely support the notion of taking a lot of this stuff out of the criminal system because I don't think it's helpful, doesn't uh, doesn't make us any safer. I think until we change the way we see people, um, it, we're still gonna make these mistakes.
1: I think that's right. And that's where I started with the culture shift and And you're absolutely right. It is, And it's the most difficult piece. And so we, every single one of us, who's listening has an individual responsibility to help think about how to reshape that narrative. Um, And that's, you know, it's a call on if you're in the media, how do you tell stories about crime? Um, um, If you're a teacher, if you're a counselor, you know, challenging yourself to rethink and understand exactly what you just said, which is how implicit bias causes us to fail to see a 12 year old child 12-year-old child like Tamir Rice as a child. And I got to say, I mean, we're sitting here, you know, in January of 2022, just weeks after Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted, right, of of walking down the street with a rifle strapped to his body, right, you know, for an an extended period of time, who then ends up actually taking the life of two people, right, and injuring a third. We've got Tamir Rice who has a toy gun in a park doing what children do. And in less than three seconds of police arrival on the scene, he is shot dead, right? Um, And it's just unreal um, that we could not see. And they kept saying, here's the thing about Tamir Rice, when those officers were interviewed, they kept saying, well, we didn't realize that he was a kid. It's the research on the empirical research on the adultification of black youth the perception that black children are 4.5 years older than they actually are. That is devastating. So a 12-year-old Tamir Rice is perceived as 16, 17 years old. A 14-year-old child is perceived as what, 18, 19. 16-year-old child is perceived as literally a full-fledged adult. It has an extraordinary impact on how we um, engage. And so we have to do this work of of getting ourselves to see uh, Black children as children and so that they get the same benefit of the doubt, same due process um that Cal Rittenhouse got um so
0: yeah I don't know you know I'm looking at his picture right now he looks like a kid to me <laughs> like
1: a kid. I do every time I do workshops and and I talk about Tamir Rice I put his picture up I'm like there's no way Trayvon Martin is the same way if you look at his picture um and people will say well no no, no Trayvon Martin was wearing a hoodie even in his hoodie he looked like a child These kids look like kids. If we allow ourselves part of the, you know, um, the research on how do you how do you uh, recalibrate, you know, your brain uh, to to resist implicit racial bias is slowing everything down right? And that was really, I mean, it's everybody talks about. well, you can't, you know, Monday morning quarterback uh, the police officers in the Tamir Rice case, but we have to Monday morning quarterback, right? Um, and there's so much to that story about how fast they moved onto that scene and how quickly they reacted. And if they had taken a position of safety, parked some distance, taken a position of safety behind bulletproof doors and looked at him and engaged with him, they would have realized that he was a 12-year-old child. So, but that's just in our day-to-day it's the woe stop three it's the recognition that we all have biases and to force ourselves to slow down and recognize those children as children and to remember what it was like to be at 12 years old
0: all right well we're just about out of time um but uh it's been a really engaging conversation and uh I will I will say this again this this is a book people should read um because uh first of all it's an engaging read um it's um but it's an important read because I think not enough people think about this stuff uh think about you know when when they think about the criminalization of black youth they're thinking oh you know uh, all these Violent crimes are happening, and of course they're getting caught up in the system, and that may be tragic. But you know, there's not much we can do about it at that point. And I don't think enough people realize um, that uh, you know we're, we're talking about normal adolescent behavior that ends up in the system, and then they have to go through the courts, and sometimes the judge, you know. Uh, Sees through it uh, as you illustrated at times in your book The judge is like oh wait a second what are we doing here right. but not always um, right. and so you know they get stuck in the system and even if you know they get released after nine months that's nine
1: months they're taken out of school absolutely it's so true and I, I can't thank you enough, David, for elevating this conversation. And it really is. It's, and I think right now, as we as a country are grappling more with police reform and criminal justice reform, that we have to pause and think specifically about the unique impact of policing and criminalization on children, which is its own sort of body of, of, of work and conversation that we need to have. So thank you.
0: Kristen Henning. She's a professor of law at Georgetown and a former public defender. And she is the author of a recent book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.